up your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're in this series on the book of Nehemiah. I've entitled the message today, Rebuilding the People. Rebuilding the People. Yesterday, USA Today, op-ed in USA Today. Here was the title, caught my attention, probably because I'm a pastor, it caught my attention. It said this. Here's the title. People fleeing churches, they'd rather go to a pub. I said, I got to read that article. I'd rather go to a pub than go to a church, and so the whole op-ed was about. Here's the opening line of the article, quote, God may not be dead, but his church is headed for hospice, end quote. Wasn't super encouraging, let's just put it that way. And it went on and on to describe what you all are very familiar with, if you pay attention at all to the general, kind of the data about the religious and spiritual condition of our country. It's down and to the right in a degree that many of the kind of the experts say there's no recovery possible. There's only one outcome. It's kind of hospice care that way. But I would believe, if we know our scriptures well, that God said that the church is going to flourish. That it doesn't mean it's not going to go through some tough stretches. It doesn't mean it's not going to go through periods of decline. But I promise you this, God's church is not going to hospice, okay? I promise you this, that he said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. It will flourish, and he has plans and purposes. And here, if you know your history well enough, if you know spiritual history and religious history, here's what you'll see. In times of decline and stagnation and dormancy, God inserts what's called a revival. Okay? A revival is a concentrated work of God upon his people that brings an awakening that brings them out of a period of dormancy and decline. Revival. Okay? Walter Kaiser wrote a great book on revival. If you want to do some reading, I commend it to you. Revive Us Again. In that book, he writes four reasons we should study revival history. Number one, to be inspired by what's possible. Does anybody need to be reminded of what God says is possible? You're going through some circumstances that look like it just, you don't see any way through this. You can't see a, a light in the midst of the darkness. When you look globally, sometimes it's so overwhelming to know how do we pray and what do we do, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the situations in Africa, all around the world, you can, in our own nation, do we want to be reminded? He said, hey, study revival history, reminding ourselves what's possible with God. And number two, he says, understand the ways God tend to move. God has a, a pattern that he tends to move in a certain way. Revival history reminds you of that. And then become the kind of people that God will use. We've been talking about this since August, that in the pattern of redemptive history, God uses the consecrated. You consecrate your whole life, your whole self, your body, your heart, your mind, your marriage, your family, your finances, your work. You consecrate it all to the Lord. He uses the consecrated. And then lastly, you set up environments that seek the Lord. Revival history reminds you about environments that God comes where he's wanted. And so I put in your notes, and I put up here on the screen, just a history of biblical revivals. Did you know that your Bible's filled with revivals? And here's just a smattering of them I put in your notes. There's a revival under the sons of Korah in Psalm 85, and there's a revival under Jacob in Genesis 35, and then there's a revival under Moses Exodus 32, revival under Samuel, 1 Samuel 7, under Elijah, 1 Kings 18, and on and on it goes. 
There are all these revivals recorded in here. And if you follow the pattern, there's times of dormancy and decline and stagnation, and usually right in that down and to the right slope, God steps in and turns it. And that's where we are in the book of Nehemiah. So we've come, do you notice in the list of revivals, do you see the one standing out to you there in Nehemiah? Do you see it? There's a revival under Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is kind of the hinge point in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1 to 7 records the rebuilding of the physical wall around the city. And we've been looking at Nehemiah has been the key character, the key leader God's used for the physical work of restoring and rebuilding about two miles of wall, about 50 feet high, about 10 to 15 feet thick. And remember, Nehemiah was, he was a cupbearer to a king. He was a day laborer in the palace in Babylon. And so he was a, he was a worker. He, was a, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a pastor. He was just a day laborer that way. He was an average, everyday citizen that God tapped and said, I got something for you to do. And he became the key character to lead the rebuilding of the wall, Nehemiah 1 to 7. And for the rest of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8 to 13, we're going to see the movement now is once the wall's rebuilt, there's now the rebuilding of the people. Because the wall was never an end in itself. The wall was a means to a bigger end. God knew he had to get the wall rebuilt so he could get the people's hearts revived and restored and renewed and awakened. And that's what we're, and he points now Ezra. So who's Ezra? Ezra's the priest. Ezra's the spiritual leader. So Nehemiah and Ezra team up. That's why in your Bibles you see Ezra and Nehemiah together. So they worked at the same period of time in the same kind of circumstances and they're co-laborers now under the project of now that we've got the wall rebuilt, Today we're going to look at the four movements in the revival in Nehemiah, when God wants to deal with stagnation, decline, dormancy, drifting. Maybe that describes, maybe that's you right now. Maybe you personally are going through a period where you just feel like God feels distant or you feel exceedingly distracted or you feel like you're just kind of in a stagnant period yourself. Maybe your own personal exile of some sort. Remember the backdrop here is they were in exile for 70 years. Maybe you come in in a place where it's just exile. You feel 700 miles from where God wants you to be. Into that space, God gives them four movements. Look up, repeat after me, look up, look back, look in, and look ahead. Four movements of Nehemiah's revival and bridge into our day and age today. So the first one, look, Nehemiah 8, 1 to 4. He says, look up, look up, people of God. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their town, all the people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, underline that, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively, underline that, to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So you got the scene here? So the wall's rebuilt, they say, okay, Ezra, we got to get Ezra, and we got to get a platform built, and then get the book of the law. So the book of the law of Moses is the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the book of the law of Moses, okay? 
Nice short little worship gathering happening here, okay? So the scripture reading for the day is Genesis 1-1 through the end of Deuteronomy. If you haven't perused that section of your Bible lately, and how short was the gathering? They, they started at 6 a.m., and they went to how long? Noon. I'm picturing how well this would go, Eagle Church. Let's say Pastor Eric calls a worship gathering. Next Sunday morning, sunrise service, 6 a.m. We're calling it family worship because who was all there? Family worship was mom, dad, and who, who else was in this gathering? All the kids are able to understand, probably elementary age on up. Family worship service, 6 a.m. to noon. Topic, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That means all the way through Leviticus and the skin infections and the mold regulations. Man, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's going to be a crowded room, I can tell you that right now. But look at this. He told them to look up. I mean, look. And what did it say about the people? Were they kind of distracted and a little, what, and what did it say they were? Listen, attentively. So here's, the, here's this. I, in the notes, I put hunger. Do you see this, church? Hunger's a sign of life. Here's when God inserts in something, right? Hunger's a, dead things are not hungry. Thanks for playing Pastor Obvious here for a moment. Dead things are not hungry. But they're hungry for the word of God. They're hungry to listen. But I believe this, not just to listen and learn the word of God, they're hungry to live the word of God. They're hungry to do what James 1 said, be doers of the word. Because it's one thing to listen to the word. They've been very aware of the word pretty much since they were young. But now they're like, oh my gosh, we've not been living the word. And so now they're listening attentively and like, oh, we've got to get our life. So they're submitting themselves. This is an unmistakable mark of the Spirit of God on someone's life. You know this? Like when you see the Spirit of God take a human heart and bring it from death to life, when you know God is at work in a person, there's an unmistakable movement that's just hunger for God, hunger to listen to Him, hunger to live for Him, hunger to be in His presence, hunger to worship and pray and get in the Word. And they're just unmistakable. This is why I love to hang around people who, who are kind of freshly redeemed, who've just found Jesus. I just try to get around them. When I hear someone's just giving their life to Jesus, I just want to spend time with them. I remember it was years ago, there was a man, he was probably in his 30s, he came to Christ here, it was a pretty radical, he didn't have a lot of spiritual background before, he never really read the Bible before, he comes to Christ, he gets a Bible, and I remember the Sunday he came, he stayed after service, and he brought his brand new Bible up to me, and he says, Pastor, have you read the book of Acts? I go, a couple of times, and he goes, that's crazy, like what's going on in there? He says, have you read like Matthew, Mark, and Luke too? I said a couple of times. He says, that's crazy. That's amazing. He couldn't get enough. He was overwhelmed. He says, that's who Jesus is? That's what he's done? That's what it means to be his follower? I mean, I didn't get to talk to anybody else that day. He literally helped right there, going through his Bible, just hunger. Hunger is a sign of life. I'd love it if every person who wants to schedule time with a pastor just wants to talk about that. That'd be amazing. It's I love it when that happens. It's just fairly rare because generally people don't come wanting to talk about how hungry and passionate they are for God and his ways. Generally, it's you know, stuff that's kind of unraveling in our lives, and that's fine too. We want to be helpful. But my point is, Ezra and Nehemiah, I promise you right now, the agenda that's covering up their to-do list is people hungry for God. 
They're like, they're not just hungry to know about God. They're like, okay, Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to live for God. We want to put it into practice. We want to be doers of the earth. It's an unmistakable movement. Do you see when you're in a place of stagnation and decline and dormancy? Do you see like when God steps into that space, it's unmistakable. Just takes and turns a human heart that way. Reveal. It says, get the word, read the word of God over the people. Do you see that? And then their hearts are stirred. It's like they have this new first love that's reordering all the other loves of their heart. That's a work of the Spirit. And there's a first love reordering all the other loves. So when the Spirit of God's reviving, when He's renewing, when He's awakening, you'll find yourself in this posture, church. You'll find yourself looking up. That's one of the movements. You start looking up. Because the tendency is, I don't know about you, here's my tendency. I look around. I look around at all the circumstances. I look around at whatever, the news feed or whatever to be described. I can look around and get super overwhelmed. But when the Spirit of God steps in, gets you look up. Look up and remember that God is great and awesome. He's clothed with splendor and majesty. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Look up, Simpson. Look up and see. This is your God. Look up. In Nehemiah's day, when the Spirit of God's being poured out, he's got a family worship service from 6 a.m. to noon that's packed. And people are attentive and hungry and passionate. It's like, okay. No doubt, he's probably looking at Ezra going, well, this has to be the Lord. Yeah, that's the point. So many of you are familiar with Brandon Lake, right? Christian artist. Many of you love and appreciate his worship songs. He's the one who wrote Tear Off the Roof, right? How much? So his new album's out recently. But I came across Brandon Lake, went into a maximum security prison, and led a little worship gathering with 50 inmates who were sentenced to life. And when I watched it, I thought, that's a group of people looking up. Take a look. Hunger is a sign of life. That's a group of men hungry for God. Can you feel it crying out from the inmost being? Nothing is better than you. That without you, we've got nothing, and with you, we have everything. That's a group of men looking up. That's what's going on in Nehemiah 8 to begin a revival movement. 
That's what we're praying for is breaking out right here in our own church, in our own city, in our own nation, believing it for our world for such a time as this. Right? Could it be right, that God's calling his people, hey, stop looking around, look up, and see a God who's clothed with splendor and majesty, glory and strength, who's reigning and ruling above the nations, who says, I will accomplish my purposes. Nothing is going to stop what I want to get done in this world. Look up and get a fresh vision of your God. And maybe today, maybe today for someone, today's the day when you say, you know what, Lord, I'm done looking around, and I'm going to start looking up. Start looking up. And then from there, he moves them to the second. He says, look back. Say, look back. See what happens in Ezra or in Nehemiah 9. He leads them on, and I won't read them all, so don't get too nervous here, but in Nehemiah 9, look at all those passages. I put a summary in your notes up here on the screen. He leads them on a little trace through redemptive history. He's saying, hey, remember, he goes from the story of Exodus, to, or he goes from Genesis to Exodus, to Sinai, to the desert, to Joshua, to Judges, to Kings, and to exile. He leads them all back through. He says, reflect on your history with God, and that'll give you perspective on your current realities that you're facing. I'm going to say that again. You gotta, we got to ground ourselves. we got to look back, and we got to remember all the ways God has been faithful and trustworthy before we got to remember our history with God, and it helps frame our current reality that we find ourselves in. And so this book, right, so here they, this book records, like, this is our redemptive history with God. So you add your redemptive history with God, and then you've got your own personal history, right? And so he's leading the Israelite nation through, he's like, he's like, hey guys, remember, do you guys remember, you remember when your grandfathers are telling you this story? Like, they were in their homeland, Israel, and there was a famine that was so bad, everyone thought they were going to starve to death. They were out of food, and they sent a small group down to Egypt to beg for some food from Egypt. Do you remember what happened? They went down to Egypt, and the secretary of agriculture, who's in charge of the whole food supply, was Joseph, who they thought was dead. That's holy crazy right there. Joseph, one of their own family members, is now leading over the food supply, and he's making sure all the Israelites are provided for. Do you remember? He's reminding them. He says, oh yeah, and by the way, do you remember when we finally got out of 400 years of slavery? Do you remember that? Pharaoh, he had such an iron fist on us. You remember when he loosened his grip? And it was like, you can go, maybe not, you can go, maybe not. Remember that whole storyline? And then finally let us go, and then said, no, maybe not, and sent the army after us. And we got like bank of the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other side. Do you remember what happened? God sent fire down from heaven, and he stopped the army on one side. And then he sent like a big wind, and he parted the sea, and he dried up the ground. Do you remember? And we crossed over. And when the last Israelite got crossed over, do you remember what happened? The water collapsed and washed away all the Egyptians that were pursuing us. That was holy crazy. He just reminding them, saying, hey, do you remember? Like, these are the ways. As you look up and remember your God is great and awesome, here's what you remember. He is a faithful God. He is trustworthy. His promises are true. He will come through. Most likely not in the way we would prefer, nor the timing that we enjoy. 
I mean, he could have made the Israelites' extraction from Egypt a lot more comfortable than it was. Anybody found that? I, I, I talked to the Lord about, I'd appreciate a little more of a comfortable walk with you, Jesus. Like where the circumstantial chaos, it's a little less like pillar of fire, Red Sea, army wanting to kill me, famine stuff. But God see it right, hey, God's got a bigger priority and agenda than comfort, convenience, and safety, which are kind of pretty important values in our, and for me, like those things like, oh gosh, that's not, those are like lower shelf values with God. He's got things like holiness, like that's a big deal with God, like he wants us to really mature in holiness. Well, you know what's a great ground to mature in holiness are like soil of uncertainty and overwhelming circumstances and Red Sea and armies and famines. That's, you know where that trains us in? Holiness. And so the Israelites, they look up and they remember, oh, that's right, God is amazing. And then they look back and go, he's faithful. He's always come through. But wow, we have the scars to show for it. We have a redemptive memory and history now. We remember when God stepped in and he made a way, when I couldn't see a way. I don't know about you, but I, I had one of those weeks where I needed to do a lot of that this week. I need to have like a lot of look up and look back. I had one of those weeks. I was just sequence of events, personal and collective. Just, just I was just, I came home one night and I told, I told Kendra, I walked in, you know, empty nest season of life. By the way, rookie year, many of you asking, we're doing okay, all right? <laughs> rookie year. Rookies work really hard at it. We don't always get it right, but we're giving good effort, okay? Adjustments. Everybody's going through adjustment in the Simpson house, all right? I came home, just the two of us were having dinner. I said, hon, I'm done. I'm like, I got nothing left. I'm mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, I'm exhausted. I'm done. So we, we got to bed a little bit later, turned the lights off. I reached over to grab her hand to pray, and it was going to be like the shortest bedtime prayer in the history of bedtime prayers. I'm done. You know, I'm like, Jesus, just thank you for the gift of this day. I pray for peaceful rest now. Amen. Like one of those kind of prayers, okay? I say amen. Ollie, our little 12-pound ball of fur, our dog's always right between us. A whole other story for another day, but he's right between us. I say amen, I open my eyes, and there's these two things like glowing in the dark. Like, I thought they were like lightning bugs like embedded in Ollie's fur. I was like, what happened? Ollie got like in some bugs or something? I said, what is going on? Kendra is just laughing uncontrollably. She can't even get a word out. She's laughing so hard. Pitch black in the room. I've got these glow-in-the-dark things going on. I'm like, honey, what is going on? What is going on? She started laughing, and she holds up her hand, and she goes, I didn't know they glowed in the dark. She's got like two of her nail tips. I guess it's this time of the year, right? Glow-in-the-dark things. And she's like, look, they glow in the dark. I'm like, what? I don't even have a category for this, okay? I think I kissed her at that point, said, I love you, I'm done, and I rolled over. That was it. True story, right, hon? That was it. I get up the next morning, she's still laughing. Do you have... Do you have those times in your life where just life feels so heavy? It just feels heavy, feels weighty, feels overwhelming. It feels like, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't see a way through that. That stuff. Where you just get to the point, I'm done. And then God, you know, he sends a little glow on the dark side, man. Just, you know, I'm done. 
into that space, he says to his people, look up and look back. Because when you look up, you're going to remember who you are worshiping and who you are calling out to. And when you look back, you are going to remember that he is faithful and true. He will come through. Listen, it won't be in the way you expect him or in the timing you want. That's clear. All the history shows that. So you take your, this is why we got to be a people grounded in this God-breathed book. We got to remember redemptive history here. And then you add your own personal history to it. You all have your own history with God and you're building it. We've got to rehearse this. We've got to remind this. This is a good Sabbath routine. On your Sabbath day, Kendra and I light three candles, and one of the things we do is we look back over the last seven days, and we just reflect on where did we see God's goodness come in. We just remember God is faithful. He's true. We've got to look back. We've got to be reminded. And then we look ahead a little bit, and we say, hey, what, what's going on this coming week? That's just a good rhythm, right? That's what he's doing with the people. Look up, look back, and then he moves them thirdly to look in. Say look in. Because God loves impossible odds, <laughs> and he loves to make a way when there seems to be no way. He says, you better spend some time looking in, because it's going to get challenging. It's going to get hard. And of course, the context of how they got where they are, they need to do some looking in. Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 1. This is what he says, 1 to 3. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. Now, why were there a bunch of foreigners inter intermingled in all this? Because where had they been for 70 years? They've been in Babylon. They've been 700 miles away. Persians, Babylonians, probably built all kinds of relationships, probably all kinds of messy marriage stuff going on. So they got to they gotta work some things out. And says they stood in their places and confessed their sins and wickedness. Now, wickedness in the Bible, the word wickedness simply means godlessness. It means going about it your own day. It's kind of, wickedness is the Bible term for you do you. Do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. The Bible term for that is wickedness. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Well, a little shorter service that day. And they spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Maybe not. Well, half a day. Check that out. Worshiping and confessing. Now, did you follow the time frame here? Church, did you see that? The, we'll call this the Watergate Revival here in Nehemiah 8. That's what we're going to call it. And it begins, did you see, on the first day of the month. What day of the month are we in now? What does it say? 24th day of the month. So we're three and a half weeks later. They declare a national day of confession and commitment. You see that? So... Three and a half weeks into this revival, national day of confession and commitment. We spent a quarter of a day confessing, quarter of a day worshiping and putting on fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was made of like black goat's hair. If you haven't hung out with a goat lately and put your hands on a goat, it's not the softest of her, okay? It's coarse, it's rough, it's not comfortable. And they would weave goat's hair together and they'd make it like a sack that they would carry their supplies in. Well, during this era, they would have them wear the sackcloth. They would actually wear the goat's hair kind of cloth on them, and it was an outward sign of mourning and submission. That's what it was. And then they'd sprinkle dust on their heads. So, well, what's up with the dust? The dust harkened back to Genesis chapter 3. It reminded them that from dust you came, to dust you will return. So dust kind of brought back the sign of humility. So there's fasting there's sackcloth and there's ashes. Hey, what does all that mean? It's this, it's this picture of, we're serious about this. Like, no more casualness. So it's nothing casual about what's going on here. We're serious, 
We're intense. We're focused on getting right with God. So sackcloth, ashes, fasting. It was this picture of no more casual. And the casualness had marked the last 70 years of their walk with God. They had just kind of drifted away and kind of done whatever they wanted to do. Just casualness, casualness around every turn. And now it's like no more of that. We're confession. And when you think of confession, here's how I want you to think of it. It's coming around to God's side of the table and saying what God says about whatever circumstance you're talking about. That's confession. So today, we're struggling a bit with confession. We like to talk about, you know, developmental growth areas. Oh, God's really working on me in this, or this is an area I'm kind of falling short. Well, actually, what God calls it is sin, and what the Bible says is you're to confess your sins to the Lord. And so we just got to get clear within the community of Christ is that we've got to name sin, we've got to call it out, and we've got to be intentional about it. We've got to come around to God's side of the table and call it as God calls it. And that's what they do here. Check it out. Nehemiah 9, verse 33, they're coming around to God's side of the table, and here's what they say. In all that has happened to us, you have been just, Lord. You've acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. Wow, how about that? That's a, that's a good little prayer we can be praying over our own nation these days, right? You know, a little window of how to intercede, right? Picture that. And so here's their ownership. You can't change something you're not aware of. They're becoming increasingly aware of something right here. They're becoming aware that they've rebelled against God. They've rejected his ways. They're determined to do what they wanted to do. See, they were the you-do-you movement before that was ever part of our vocabulary. They were convinced they were going to do what's right in their own eyes, that they knew better than God, and they were just going to do it the way they wanted to do it, how they wanted to do it, when they wanted to do it, and they've been doing it for 70 years. That's how they ended up in Babylon. Remember, they first rejected Nehemiah for 23 years, or Jeremiah for 23 years. They told Jeremiah, we're not interested. We're gonna, we want to go worship the queen of heaven. We want to do what we want to do, Jeremiah. And they shoved Jeremiah aside. God sent him to Babylon. The people were like, oh my gosh, this is how we ended up in Babylon. This is how the walls got broken. This is how the gates got burned. This is how the temple got all destroyed. This is why this has been this way. Do you see it? There's an awareness. Awareness is the first movement towards change. And so they're saying, hey, we sinned, we fell short, we've drifted, we were unfaithful. And so this movement of looking in, it says we take ownership from how we got to where we are. It's confession. And if you study revival history, here's what you'll see all through it. That when God's moving this way, you look up, you look back, and then you look in. Here's what you'll see. Strong men and women humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, taking personal ownership for their sin and crying out for the mercy of God. You'll see it. Hungry. People hungry for God, hungry to walk in his ways, and then going, oh my gosh, I've gone a long way from where you want me to be, Lord. And then they humble them, strong men and women, on their face before God, sackcloth, ashes, fasting, saying, God, we've fallen short. Have mercy on us, O oh God, a sinner. Have mercy. It's this undeniable difference between someone who's sorry for being caught for someone broken for their sin. You know what I'm talking about? There's a big difference in, the, in a walk with God when you're just sorry for getting caught on something versus you're broken before God for your sin and you're crying out for his mercy. That's a movement of the Spirit. And it's unmistakable. 
And so I think, church, as we reflect back, perhaps on our own personal condition of the heart, collectively as a church, how about the church of Jesus in our own country? How about the condition of our own nation? And to say, look up, look back, and look in. And take some ownership. Say, God, we've fallen short. We've gotten distracted. We're self-absorbed. We're shoving you aside. We're mocking your name. We've got to own some things. We wander. We drift. We go our own way. And this is a part of revival history. Look up, look back, look in. And now lastly, look ahead. Say look ahead. Here's what they do, the fourth movement. They say, in, all, in view of all this, we are making, circle, a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, our priests are affixing their seals to it. Woo! How about this? This is a kind of public commitment to go a new direction. This isn't some little personal line in your journal between you and God. Lord, I just... You know, I just kind of seal this before you between me and you. No, 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 no. This is going public. This is getting all the key people in your life together, putting it on writing, setting it before them and say, hold me to it. I'm going a new way. I'm not going the direction I used to be going. I'm going a different way. This is an example where the relationship with God is always, of course it's supposed to be personal, but it's never intended to be private. You see, the privatization of faith, that's not a Christian concept. That's actually what secularism is trying to disciple us in. Secularism is trying to disciple us to live without God. Do you know one of the key tenets of secularism is the privatization of faith? It's basically saying you can believe whatever you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. Make sure it has no bearing in the public sphere. Which, by the way, at that moment you ought to say, I don't think you really believe that. Because is the one worldview statement that you want bearing in the public sphere the secularism statement that your personal belief can't have bearing in the public sphere? You tracking with me? Because truth's what you run into when you're wrong. So what we believe as followers of Jesus isn't just our own personal belief. We actually believe what he said. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He stands on his own two feet. Truth stands independent of anyone's personal belief in it. That's how truth works. There's thou shalt and thou shall not, and God sets them up. And then you run, when you go your own way, you're going to run into reality when you're wrong. As a nation, we're running into a lot of reality right now because we've been trying to set it up on our own eyes. And the privatization of faith is not a biblical worldview. Your faith matters in every sphere of your life. It has implications on every aspect of your life. That's how truth works. Because we actually really, really believe God set things up to run a certain way. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And it has public, of course, and private implications. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah. It's like, hey, we're no longer going to do what we've been doing. We're going a new way. It's, it's impacting us personally. And now it has public consequence. We're getting the leaders together, getting the officials together. We're getting the spiritual leaders. We're getting the community leaders. Everybody's in on this. We're going a new direction. It's a binding agreement. Similar to what baptism is in the church today. Similar to that. What the covenant of marriage is in a relationship, similar to that. It's a binding agreement. It's at that level. And that's a mark of revival. In the presence of God and others, we're going a new way. So they're going to look up, they're going to look back, they're going to look in, and they're going to look ahead. And into that, God's spirit is poured out in this place of stagnation and decline and dormancy. Where the people, no doubt the commentary up to this point of the last 70 years on the pe God's people say, you're God's people? 
this is God's city? Where's your God? What's he doing? You guys look like a mess. You're feeble. The walls are broken. The temple's destroyed. The gates are broken. It does not look good. That's this season. And then God steps in, says, hey, get the walls rebuilt. Get the people together. Get the word out. Look up. Look up. Your God is great and awesome, clothed in glory and splendor and majesty. Do not forget who you are worshiping and who you are talking to. There is none like him. Just like those men in that prison, looking up, there's nothing's better than you. Look up. Stop looking around. Look up. And then look back. Look back. Remember, remember he's faithful. He's trustworthy. His promises are true. He's going to deliver. He's going to come through. It's going to be different than you prefer. It's not going to be in the timing and the way you want it, but he's going to come. He's going to deliver. And then look in. Take some ownership. We drift. We wander. We stray. We go our own way. And then look ahead and say, you know what? In light of who you are and in light of what you've done and in light of who I am, I'm going your way. I'm making a binding agreement. I'm going God's way. And it has public implications. Worship team, come on back up. Here's how we're going to pray. Wrap it up. I wonder today if the Lord's been stirring in your own hearts some personal revival renewal plates, maybe in the midst of your own ups and downs that we all have in the spiritual life. Has he been stirring like God's trying to breathe some new life into a space? Do you sense that? Do you sense him stirring something? Do you sense an awakening? sense a coming to life somewhere, a rebuilding work in your own heart? Or maybe you're just coming through a recent exile season and you're in the middle of an exile, right? There's all kinds of exiles, marital exile, parenting exile, financial exile, illness exile, career exile, ministry exile, all kinds of exiles. Maybe you're in the middle of one or just coming out of one. And right into that space, perhaps this morning, God says to you, look up, look back, look in, and look ahead. Because he's not done with you. He's not done with us. I'll close with Robertson McQuilkin. You've heard me talk about him before. President of Columbia University. He was for 22 years the president there. He, had a, he was married to his wife, Muriel, for 40 years. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's while he was president of the school. He was wrestling with what to do on her care because she needed a lot of care. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to resign from my position. Because right in the midst of him trying to figure out what to do, their oldest son was killed in a diving accident. So he's, he's caring for a wife who's struggling with Alzheimer's. They lost their oldest son to a diving accident. He's overwhelmed with the life circumstances. And he, goes, he resigns from his presidency at Columbia, and he goes home, and he stays by his wife's bedside for 13 years and cares for her. The last eight of those years, she couldn't speak his name or anyone else's name. In the midst of that valley and all the weight of those heavy responsibilities, he got out his journal and he wrote this. Life was heavy on me, McQuilkin said. I was numb, not bitter. Why should I be? That's the way life is, life in a broken world. But the passion and my love for God had evaporated, leaving a residue of resignation. I knew that I was in deep trouble and I did the only thing I knew to do. I went away for prayer and fasting. It took about 24 hours to shake free of the preoccupation with my own wounds and to focus on the excellencies of God. Hear this. I wrote God a love letter, naming 41 of his marvelous gifts to me. Looking up, do you see that? Spotlighting 11 of his grandest acts in history. Looking back, do you see that? Exulting in 10 of his characteristics that exceed my imagination. Surely he enjoyed my gratitude. Who doesn't appreciate gratitude? But 
hear this, I discovered something else. I call it the reflex action of thanksgiving, that ingratitude imparbishes, but a heavy heart lifts on the wings of praise. So let's pray, church. Jesus, I just ask for an outpouring of your spirit, the heavy hearts that may be here or joining us online from wherever they are, that you just lift them on the wings of praise now as we exalt your name. Collectively, would you help us look up to see the great and awesome God that you are and be reminded that you're faithful even when we're not and to take ownership for all the ways that we drift and wander and go our own way. And then may today be a day where we draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I'm going God's way. I'm done going my way. I'm done getting swallowed up in the world's ways. I'm going God's way. I'm making a binding agreement today. And in that, would you lift it up on the wings of praise now? Just lift up our eyes together, we pray in Jesus' holy name.